Okay, Jesse, last week's story twists were absolutely nuts. What's happening this time around? When two strangers die of mysterious causes less than one week apart, authorities rush to connect the cases and discover what or who is killing people before more lives are lost. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hey, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about illicit dreams, deadly schemes, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please, please, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Okay, Andy, first things first, it has been, as of tomorrow when this show comes out, one full year of love murder. Whoa. Isn't that wild? Yes, that's so crazy. Time really flies when you're having fun and making babies, huh? (laughs) It definitely flies when you're making babies, except for the last (laughs) month. Yeah, well, welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder. This is our one-year anniversary. If you are new to the show, welcome. We're so happy to have you here. And in the last year, we birthed a podcast and two babies. Andy and I have a couple of newly turned four months old. So we have done a lot in the last year. We are so excited to share these episodes with you. And to celebrate, we have a bonus episode coming out that I am incredibly excited for. Woo. It features Bob Mata of the Defense Diaries. Yeah, Andy, how much fun was it? Uh, he's so great. So, so great. Yeah, we had a great time. Bob is a defense attorney. And his father was one of the defense attorneys for Mr. John Wayne Gacy. So you can imagine how incredible this podcast is. It has hours and hours of never before heard footage of John Wayne Gacy. And Bob really delves into the case in a way that I have absolutely never heard it done. It's such an amazing podcast, guys. And this bonus episode is going to be great. So keep your ears open. We should be releasing it later this week or at the beginning of next week, latest. Now, let's launch into today's anniversary episode. A call came in at 5.02 p.m. on June 5th, 1986 in rural Auburn, Washington. The volunteer firefighters and EMTs blew up gusts of dust, making their way down a dirt and gravel road before finding the mobile home tucked back into the woods. The caller, a woman named Stella Nickel, let them in and led them to her husband, Bruce, who had collapsed and appeared to be having a seizure. None of the medical professionals had seen anything like Bruce's condition before. He appeared to be unconscious, but he had a blood pressure and his heart was beating. Most disconcertingly was his appearance, beet red above the neck and fish white below. It was such a distinct contrast, it appeared a line had been drawn. An overdose? Perhaps a stroke? No one could figure out what was happening to Bruce, but it was sure that he was fading fast and needed immediate assistance. 
A helicopter was called to transport Bruce to the hospital, and the paramedics peppered Stella with questions. Bruce was a relatively healthy man in his early 50s who had beat alcoholism a while back, Stella said. She claimed that Bruce had come home from work with a headache. He had showered, taken some Excedrin, and was admiring the hawks on their deck when he collapsed. She mentioned the pain reliever several times, even thrusting the bottle into one of the paramedics' hands. The man handed it back to her, figuring that an over-the-counter medicine like Excedrin couldn't possibly be the reason for whatever was currently devastating Bruce Nickel. Though the paramedics did everything in their power, Bruce's blood pressure was falling rapidly. His wife appeared stoic and calm, but her eyes welled with tears as they lifted Bruce away into the sky and towards Harborview Medical Center, where he would take his last breaths. Well, they did a helicopter. Yeah, they had to do a helicopter lift on this because he was just fading away and they had no idea what could possibly cause this sudden death. Even scarier, in another house in Auburn, six days later at 6.30 a.m. on June 11th, 1986, Sue Snow was giving her 15-year-old daughter a hug good morning. The two chatted about Haley's older sister, Exa, And then with an I love you, Sue went to do her morning routine and head to her job as a vice president of a bank. Haley heard her mother's sink turn on from the master bath and she herself jumped in the shower to get ready for school. While she was showering, she heard a loud thud. While Haley continued to get ready, she realized her mother's sink was still running. Becoming alarmed, she rushed to her mother's bathroom where she found 40-year-old Sue Snow unconscious on the ground. She still appeared to be breathing, though. Haley was panicked but stayed calm enough to call 911, where she described her mother as sleeping with her eyes open. Oof. Terrifying. The paramedics rushed to the home, but again, whatever ailed Sue and caused her fall was a complete mystery. She didn't have any health problems other than some frequent headaches, her daughter reported. She wasn't addicted to drugs or suicidal, and she couldn't have fallen in the shower because her mother took her showers at night, so she was just getting ready with the sink. As several resuscitation attempts failed, Sue Snow, like Bruce Nickel, was flown to Seattle's Harborview Medical Center, and by the time she arrived, she was in a coma. Oh, my God. I mean, this is, when you don't know the cause of it, it's just... So, 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 so scary. Terrifying. Yeah. Haley called her father, Connie Snow, Sue's ex-husband, and Sue's current husband, Paul Webking, who was a long-haul trucker. As 15-year-old Haley waited in the twilight zone of the hospital waiting room, she moved through shock and confusion to despair. A doctor returned and shared the terrible news that Sue was completely brain dead. All that was left to do was to take her off life support. Very shortly after this, Sue Snow was declared dead. How is it possible that two strangers on opposite sides of Auburn, both in good health, could die of this mystery illness? Could it be random or something much more insidious and personal? A tragic accident or an evil act committed by someone one or both victims knew? We're going to find out today on the one-year anniversary episode of Love Murder. So let's start talking about Sue first to see if we can unravel this mystery. Sue and her identical twin sister, Sarah, were born on April 13th, 1946. Sarah was shy and introverted, while Sue was outgoing, adventurous, and popular. 
At 16, Sue got pregnant with her high school boyfriend and married him. She moved to a farm with her now husband. His name was Jackie Clayton and gave birth to a baby girl named Exa on June 30th, 1963. Sue became bored of being a farm wife almost immediately. And her attention turned towards her brother-in-law, which is Trey Scandalous. Trey Scandalous and Trey Love Murder. Yes, it is. So she uh, started eyeballing her husband's sister's husband. That's how she was related to this guy. And yep. And she fell in love with the 11 years older Connie Snow crazy. So you can imagine that Sue's parents were less than impressed with this turn of events and they begged the two lovebirds to wait a year before beginning a relationship. Connie moved to Seattle to start a job at Boeing and lo and behold, one year later, he and Sue were still pining for each other. So when Sue was 20 years old, she and little Exa moved to Seattle where she married Connie and began a job as a bank teller at the Puget Sound National Bank. Sue achieved her GED and began to get promotion after promotion. It always bothered her that she hadn't been able to go to college, but she proved her intelligence and work ethic like more than enough throughout the years. Sue was definitely a high achiever with charm to match for sure. She had always loved the actress Haley Mills from The Parent Trap. So when her second daughter was born on April 24th, 1971, she named her Haley. (laughs) <laughs> Over the, <laughs> you guessed it. <laughs> Over the years, the snow marriage sees some high highs and some low lows. Oh no. Yeah, it's just one of those things. Definitely Sue climbing the corporate ladder was one of those things as well as Haley, who was apparently just the best baby and toddler ever. But their marriage wasn't so great. And Exa was a very smart teenager, but she was like very independent and she would often butt heads with Sue. Okay. Yep. So those were kind of like some of the lows. And I I mean, I think that the marriage stuff was actually the worst. In an attempt to reclaim her youth and the dating life that she had never had, Sue began to have some short-lived love affairs. Oh, no. Yeah, I think it's just one of those things, though, because she had a baby at 16 and then she was remarried at only 20. Yep. So she completely missed out on dating and I think she felt a little trapped at that point. So she started mm, sleeping around a little bit. And at one point, she even moved her daughters back to New Mexico, which is where she was from. And she dated another guy there for like a year. But when it fell apart, Connie and the bank in Seattle ended up taking her back. So she moved back with the girls. So she wasn't parent trapped. She was partner trapped. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly right. Good job. Good job there. (laughs) Dork. I I love that. I have one really bad pun coming up in this story, and you'll be so excited when I say it. The honeymoon was short-lived, though, because Connie found a love letter that she had written to a bank coworker and finally ended the marriage. Yeah, like that's real analog, an old love letter. You can't shit where you eat, too. Like, let's not have an affair at work. No, especially when she's doing so well at work. Like, keep it yeah. keep it outside of the work. Yeah. So despite an immediate separation, the two didn't technically divorce for eight years, and Connie remained loving and potentially still in love with Sue until the day she died. Oh, poor Connie. Sad. 
Yeah. In 1978, after a few failures at romance over the years, a teenage exa introduced her mother to the single father of one of her schoolmates, and the two hit it off. Exa would later call it the biggest mistake she ever made. Oh, no. How do you spell Exa's name? E-X-A. That's really cool. Isn't it really cool? Also, I don't know where the name came from because in another section, they talk about how her given name was Cindy, but she just became known by Exa. I was like, how do you go from Cindy to Exa? But I'll take it. Oh, crazy. (laughs) Yeah, it it is. It's It's a very cool name. The man was Paul Webking, a direct, no-nonsense, long-haul trucker who is described as demanding and rude. Yet, somehow the pair complimented each other. Sue, who always had to be overly kind and solicitous in her job at the bank, was refreshed by Paul's attitude and began to adopt a similar one in her personal life. She was smitten with the brass trucker in every way. So it was devastating when Sue discovered that Paul had cheated on her with an ex-girlfriend named Mary while he was on the road. Ew. uh, Paul. Paul, come on. So Paul did confess. He told Sue that it hadn't meant anything to him and they even intended couples counseling. And it appeared to maybe have worked because Paul and Sue surprised Everyone by eloping on Thanksgiving Day 1985 in Reno. Oh, no. Yeah. Sarah, Sue's twin, wanted to be happy for her sister, but knew that the union was plagued with issues. Later on, after Sue's funeral, Sarah would find evidence of just how bothered Sue continued to be by the affair. Now I'm going to tell you about the book we used for research today. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, if this is your first episode, you'll see that I have a problem where I introduce our sources in the middle of the episode. So today we have a special treat. We are using Bitter Almonds, a book by one of Love Murder's favorite authors, Mr. Greg Olson. I don't think it's a problem at all. I think it really just keeps everyone on their toes. (laughs) yeah and it makes sure you're really paying attention to the sources once i've already got you in here yeah Mm -hmm. yeah we love greg olson here at love murder and this book was no different really fantastic so yes from bitter almonds here is the discovery that sarah made after sue's death she found an old notebook scribbled with an angry hand fuck paul i hate mary i hate paul Sarah left the notebook where she found it and never told anyone it existed. The discovery, however, started her thinking. She thought about the last months of her twin's life. When she called, sometimes she was mad. Sometimes she was devastated. She thought she was losing him. She did love Paul. I can't have him, so I really want him. I know that you're maybe that way in high school, but you're supposed to outgrow it. Sarah just listened. She never encouraged her sister to leave her husband. She knew Sue didn't want to leave him. During one of their marathon phone calls, Sue told her Paul had claimed he had slept with Mary only once. Sometimes I don't believe the son of a bitch, Sue said between tears. Sue thought that it was only once, and that was real important to her. It wouldn't have made a difference to me, one or a thousand times, but it was important to her. It really was, Sarah recalled later. As she had even in childhood, Sarah supported her twin. Sometimes that meant keeping her mouth shut. She saw her brother-in-law as a master manipulator and controller. She wondered how Sue had fallen for a man like him in the first place. 
When her answer came, it was from a television program. About the time Sue and Paul were having that trouble with Mary, there was a show on Donahue that we all watched. Women who fall for shitty men. (laughs) Just a hilarious, hilarious subject for a TV show. One point they made was that the way we are all raised, we don't feel like we are worthy of accepting our success. So we fall for some man who will bring us down a notch or two. Which is sad because Sue had done so much in her life and career, you know? Yeah, it's horrible. So Sarah, already not a fan of Paul Webking, was appalled when he pulled life support from Sue without waiting for her twin sister to arrive and get the opportunity to say goodbye. Um, Yeah, that smells a little fishy. Seriously fishy. How pissed would you be like if something happened to you and I didn't get to say goodbye to you I would immediately call the police and be like arrest that man (laughs) yeah no not okay yeah not okay so Sarah still arrives to support her nieces especially Haley who's only 15 and at this point Sarah wants Haley to come live with her you know yeah she also wants to find out what the hell happened to her healthy sister you know uh yeah well, one good way to figure out what the heck is happening is to do an autopsy. So let's talk about Sue Snow's autopsy results. <laughs> let's. At the autopsy, upon the very first incision, the pathologist assistant, Janet Miller, got a whiff of an unforgettable scent. It was the same smell she had smelled years earlier when a University of Washington employee committed suicide by ingesting a lethal dose of cyanide. Whoa. Apparently, cyanide gives off the smell of bitter almonds. What? Yeah, hence the the name of bitter almonds sound like. (laughs) Smell like. That's exactly what Nathaniel asked. He was like, Like, how would you identify a bitter almond versus a regular almond? Is it that almond flavored liqueur? (laughs) Like, Like amaretto? Yes. Is it like, ooh, that's a sour amaretto instead of an amaretto sour? Maybe it's like an am. <laughs> I, don't, I honestly don't know. I really don't know because I have been fortunate enough in my life to have never smelled cyanide. Or a bitter almond. Or a bitter almond, apparently. Well, Janet Miller later said, there is something that is so characteristic about the smell of cyanide that once you smell it, if you smell it again, you know. There was no doubt in my mind that I had smelled cyanide. I just didn't know the significance of it at the time because she didn't have any of the classic symptoms of cyanide poisoning. She was pale as a white shirt. The other cyanide case that I had seen, he was cherry red, just like a cyanide victim is supposed to be. Weird. Very weird. And remember somebody else who was very bright red in the face? Uh, yeah. Yep. Her, her neighbor over on the other mm-hmm. side of Auburn. Exactly. Mr. Bruce Nichols. So the pathologist even joked, you know, this is crazy, but did this woman take Tylenol, which is a reference to the infamous Chicago Tylenol murders, which were a series of cyanide poisoning deaths caused by drug tampering in 1982. What? Yeah. Have you heard of this? No. Okay. It is wild. A total of seven people died in the original poisonings with many more deaths the result of copycat crimes. So somebody put cyanide in 
uh, Tylenol capsules all over Chicago. And the craziest thing about it is that the perpetrator and the motive is still unknown to this day. Okay, that's absolutely terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. So that's what she was referencing here and not really thinking that it was possible, but knowing that there was definitely something going on with cyanide in Sue Snow's autopsy. Okay. So Paul had reported that Sue took Excedrin every single morning, though his story did waver. At first, he said it was because she had chronic headaches. Uh huh. Another time, he said that they both took Excedrin in the morning because Excedrin contains caffeine. And so he said that they would take it instead of coffee. Regardless, she had reportedly taken them the morning of her death. The FBI took the Excedrin bottle and tested it and found that three out of the 60 remaining Excedrin capsules contained cyanide. Oh my God. Yeah. So Paul's like, I had no idea. I just took two out of this bottle today. Like he took it earlier that morning. So he's like, clearly I didn't know. So the FBI is called in to begin to investigate because they're terrified that they have another potential Chicago Tylenol. Do they know that he took two that morning, though? They have no idea. He says he took two. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. And as you can imagine, Sarah, Sue's twin sister, and Sue's daughters are beginning to get a wee bit suspicious of old Paul when they find out their mother died of poisoning. Uh, No shit. Yeah, and it just gets worse for Paul because first of all, Exa overhears Paul telling the FBI agent that they always bought capsules and that this is how Sue preferred to take her Excedrin when Exa, Haley, and Sarah all knew that she preferred tablets 100% of the time and they don't even know why she was taking capsules. I don't really, like, I've never even thought about it. Have you thought about that? Like, I've never no. had a preference for, te- but maybe it's because we weren't alive during that scare. Yeah, I've never had a preference for either form. Like, you know, you and I both take Unisom occasionally, and I don't really care whether it's the capsule or the no. tablet. Yeah. But, you know, if you think about it, you can F with a capsule and put some crap in there if you break it open and put something else in, and you can't really F with a tablet, you know? Yeah. So I guess it makes sense why some people might prefer tablets, especially if they lived through the the scare of the Tylenol murders, you know? Yeah, no, I, I totally understand that. I just think it's funny. I've never like, I've never had that conversation with Dan, like that I prefer one or the other, but moving forward, only tablets. <laughs> yeah, right? Or now like liquid learned. gels, liquid gels for the win. Exactly. And I guess, I mean, the Tylenol case and then this case definitely helped put into action some anti-tampering laws and I'm sure in increased the security around the packaging, you know, that sort of thing. So the FBI was a little suspicious as well. The whole capsules versus tablets thing, the changing story of why she took Excedrin every day. They found evidence of the marriage woes and infidelity. And even worse was Paul's unemotional, straightforward attitude, like the whole time his wife is dying, which Ew. is so bizarre. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, the cap of the Excedrin capsule bottle was missing. Something that obviously could have, uh huh, it could have supplied them important physical evidence with regards to the tampering. So Paul claimed that Sue didn't like futzing with lids and always threw out the top upon opening the bottle. You've got to be kidding me. 
Yeah, this seems really bizarre. That means that if you like knock it over, it's just going to spill everywhere. That seems crazy. Yeah, that seems crazy. And coincidentally, Sue's death had occurred on garbage day. So that lid was somewhere buried in a landfill by now. Mm-hmm. How coincidental. How coincidental. <laughs> How coincidence. What a coinky ding. <laughs> Uh, The detective was also put off when he delivered the news about the cyanide being found in the Excedrin capsules and Paul barely bat an eye saying, oh, that's what we expected. What? You heard that there's cyanide in medication that you yourself claim to have taken and you're just going to be like, yeah, I expected that. What? Oh my God, this guy. Yeah. So the detective thought, hmm, maybe you expected it because you put it in there, you know? Yeah. Maybe you expected it because you're a guilty ass motherfucker. (laughs) Exactly. So the FBI pulls all of the Excedrin bottles from local stores and ends up testing them and they discover another tainted bottle. (gasps) What? And still in the stores. Yeah. Oh my God. So at this point, Excedrin issues a nationwide recall and nobody wants a replay of the Tylenol situation. So a group of drug manufacturers band together to offer a $300,000 reward to apprehend the culprit or culprits behind the poisonings. So that's that's like 700. Yeah, I mean, it's not. It's like 736,000 in today's money. No, that's not enough money to save people's lives. Yeah, and they also make a lot of money. They can no afford shit. to pony up at least a million dollars, you know? Yeah, that's ridiculous. So while the FBI are doing a full investigation into Bristol Myers, the Excedrin parent company, and the stores where the poison bottles have been, they're also looking pretty darn hard closer to home with Paul Webking. Not only do Sue's sister and daughter suspect Paul, Sue's colleagues and friends report that Paul was jealous and controlling in his relationship and always deeply resentful that Sue was the successful breadwinner in the marriage. What a loser. Total loser. The field of potential victims and suspects is about to widen, though, because Stella Nickel comes forward to report another potential poisoning after learning about Sue's death on the nightly news. So remember that Bruce actually died six days before Sue. Yep. And Bruce's death had been officially ruled a case of undiagnosed emphysema. But he hadn't been tested for cyanide poisoning because obviously that's not top of mind when you're a medical examiner and it appears that everything's fine, you know? Yep, yep. But Stella's gut instinct was that Bruce too had been a victim of the nefarious unknown tamperer and poisoner. So she hands over her bottle of Excedrin for testing and though Bruce had already been buried, he had donated his eyes to science. So they were able to get his eyeballs from the eye bank and test them for cyanide. You stop. Isn't that wild? That is crazy. Yeah. And the craziest thing yet, though, is that her bottle of Excedrin and Bruce's eyeballs come back positive for cyanide. Oh, my God. So Bruce was actually victim number one. Upon a search of Stella's mobile home, they find an additional bottle of cyanide-laced Excedrin. So the authorities think that's a little wild. Is there some, like, crazy love murder angle where Paul is... And Stella? 
Yeah. Okay, that's kind of what I thought too. And maybe really? it is. I'm not I'm not giving anything away yet. Ah. I'm just saying there's some sketchy stuff going on. Sketchy sketch sketch. Meanwhile, the FDA inspected the Morrisville, North Carolina plant where the tainted lot was packaged, but there's no evidence at all of cyanide on site, nor in any of the other pills at the plant. Another tainted bottle is found at the store Sue Snow bought her Excedrin at. So there's another bottle. Oh my God, I would be losing it if I was Excedrin. Yes. Well, this time, actually, the bottle was an Anison 3, which is a type of aspirin. So now they found four Excedrins and one Anison. And Washington State, at this point, bans the sale of all non-prescription capsules for 90 days. They're like, we have three months to figure this shit out because this is insane. Oh, my God. Paul Webking and Stella Nickel both file wrongful death lawsuits against Bristol Myers. Apparently, Paul also wanted to file suit against the medical examiner's office and hospital for failing to realize that Bruce was poisoned. He was basically arguing that if they had recognized that Bruce had cyanide poisoning earlier, they could have potentially issued a warning or yep. a recall yep. in the six days before Sue died. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so... I think he has a point there for sure. Basically, his attorneys, though, were like, no, just go for the, you know, the drug company. They have all the money. Focus on that. Yeah, their whole $700,000 reward. Come on. Yeah. Jeez. Come on, you guys. Come on. After examining 15,000 bottles of Excedrin and other non-prescription capsule drugs found in the same lot number or stores that the original bottles were purchased at, they discovered five bottles in total. The first belonging to Sue Snow, the second the Anison 3 bought at the same store, a third additional bottle of Excedrin found in a different store, and two bottles found with cyanide in Stella Nichols' possession which is pretty unbelievable odds that out of 15,000 bottles, she would somehow end up with two contaminated bottles, which she claims she bought at two different stores. Uh-huh. Yeah, Stella, that might be literally unbelievable. <laughs> Despite this wild so-called coincidence, the FBI are pretty sure Paul Webking was still the tamperer because they could not figure out why on earth Stella would call attention to herself if she was the bad guy here. I mean, Bruce's death had already been ruled emphysema. So if she was the killer, she would have gotten away with it already. It defies logic that she would basically turn herself in. So they're like, maybe she's just that unlucky. Oh, no. Yeah, because that doesn't make any sense. <sighs> no, that's a bit of a head scratcher, Jess. It is. And that's what the FBI thinks, too. So they're continuing to investigate Paul as their number one suspect. And they just keep finding more shit about him that looks guilty. An ER doctor reported that Paul before knowing any of this, had suggested in the hospital that perhaps her coma was due to cyanide poisoning. No, he did not. He did. And he also had a double indemnity policy on Sue, which means that her insurance policy pays out double in the event oh. of accidental death or murder. My God, dude. To make matters even more suspicious, Paul gets remarried to a flight attendant only six months after Sue's untimely death. He has not listened to our show. No, he hasn't. He is making all of the biggest mistakes. All yeah. of the red flags are Text going up. Book red flag. 
So the FBI is like, yo, Paul, we can clear all of this suspicion up if you want to submit to a polygraph. And Paul is, of course, insulted, but he does surprise the authorities by not only submitting to the lie detector test, but then passing it with flying colors. He's one of those, huh? Well, that's what we might think. So despite passing this lie detector test, Paul was still super weird and acting super shady. From Bitter Almonds, here's a description of what one of the special agents talked to him about after the polygraph. Special Agent Cusack could see what the results indicated. Paul, it is my conclusion after this examination that you're not involved in the cyanide product tampering in any way. Paul looked satisfied and relieved. After they talked a bit, he rose to leave. I only have one thing to say about this case, Paul said. What's that? You guys will never solve this case. Fleetingly, Special Agent Cusack wondered what he could have missed during the polygraph. Uh, why? I'm just telling you, his voice trailed off. You guys just won't catch the killer. When her brother-in-law returned to Auburn and announced that he had passed the polygraph, Sarah Webb embraced him as though she was glad for him, sorry for what he had been through. Inside, however, she still had her doubts. I thought he was so manipulative that he could lie during a polygraph, she later said. When Auburn detective Mike Dunbar heard Jack Cusack's news, he couldn't believe it. There's got to be something wrong, he told colleagues at the department. While he had no doubt about Jack Cusack's ability as a polygrapher, he was convinced Paul Webking had been his wife's killer. So, I don't know. Ugh, that's so hard, though, because you have to, like, you're, like, sitting there knowing that this dude did it and you can't, you don't have anything on him and a lie detector doesn't even help. Yeah, and then he says that weird thing. It's just so bizarre. So they're back to square one, and the FBI are just desperately trying to find the source of the cyanide, like where the person purchased it at least, you know? Yeah, yeah. But they're totally coming up empty-handed, so they focus their efforts on analyzing the contaminated capsules from all five sources. And they discover something very interesting indeed. All of the cyanide capsules include very fine green specks that, you know, have no correlation with normal cyanide. Okay. Further analysis on just the green specks show that they are comprised of manurinon, semizin, and atrozin. All three are algaecides, chemicals used to kill algae. After another battery of tests, these flecks are proven to be a specific brand of aquarium product called Algae Destroyer. So it's basically a product to keep your fish uh-huh. tank clear Clean. of algae. Yep. Yeah. So the FBI passed the info on to the Seattle field office, and one of the agents there goes, oh, shit. When I was over interviewing Stella Nickel, do you know what she had in her house? An Fish tanks. Yes. yes. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. Stella and Bruce were collectors of tropical fish. Oh, my God. So because Stella at this point is smelling a little fishy. <laughs> there she is. There it is. The FBI decide to give her a closer look. When they do, they find out that Bruce's life insurance policy would only pay out $5,000 if he died of natural causes, but $135,000 if it was deemed accidental. Oh, my God. Of course it is. 
Which, why do insurance companies do this? They're just basically begging people to murder their spouses. I know, they're (laughs) such enablers. (laughs) Okay, so yeah, also she would be able to sue the drug company and potentially get a huge payday there too. So she's looking to majorly cash in. Oh my God. Stella, what did you do? Or perhaps it could still be Paul. Or, like you suggested earlier, maybe they're in cahoots? I mean, how coincidental would it have to be that she poisoned him with some algae fighter and then he poisoned her with cyanide? Well, they were in the stores. So Sue or Bruce could have bought a contaminated bottle from the store. The one thing that is true is that all of the cyanide did come from one source because there's no way algae destroyer is randomly in cyanide. So obviously the person who tampered with the capsules had accidentally mixed it in. So all of the cyanide is coming from the same source, but the person who tampered put them in stores. So these two could potentially not be related. That's so scary. It's really scary. And that's why people are losing their mind about this case. So let's let's talk about Stella for a while and figure out whether it's her or Paul or the two of them together, okay? Yes. Stella Nichol was born Stella Maudine Stevenson in Colton, Oregon in the summer of 1943 to a woman named Alva Georgia who went by Joe and then later she went by Cora Lee. So I'm going to call her Cora Lee. Okay. And her husband, George Stevenson. The lumberman and his wife already had a son and three daughters when little Stella came on the scene, and the pair struggled to make ends meet, living in a cramped home without running water or an indoor toilet. Oof. Whoa. Yeah. Daddy was a drunk, and their mom would go out at night to track him down, often saying that she was, quote, keeping an eye on him, but mostly she was just drinking with him when she found him. Yep. So the kids were like left alone pretty much all the time. The couple also fought tremendously and there was a lot of abuse in the home. George was abusive towards Coralie. Coralie was a tough broad, so she would like give it right back to him. And even one of the daughters, Georgia May, later accused George of sexual abuse. Oh no. Yeah. So eventually Coralie took her children and escaped George, but the hardship wasn't over. The family moved into a tent house and one day while Coralie and her son were gathering wood for a campfire, one of the girls accidentally poured kerosene over a cook stove and caused an explosion. Um, what? Yeah, don't leave your little kids around kerosene and an open flame. Jeez oh Louise. Oh my God, people. Five-year-old Stella's leg caught on fire, and though it was put out, she required multiple painful skin grafts over a two-month period at a Portland hospital. Oh, no. Yeah, that's that's like I've heard one of the most painful things that you can have done is yeah. slow skin grafts. Uh, yeah, could you imagine? No, and at five years old, how can you understand what's happening to you, you know? No, you can't. You're just in constant pain. Yes. So she would remain insecure about her deeply scarred leg for the rest of her life. After this, Coralie became a trucker to support her family, and she met and married another trucker. The marriage, sadly, was a repeat of her first marriage. Lots of alcoholism and fighting. No. Yeah, but this one did produce a sweet little baby boy named Joe. 
Unfortunately, tragedy struck again when the children were once more left alone and a house fire broke out again. Ugh. Little Joe had been having breakfast in his high chair when the fire started at the kitchen stove and none of the children could reach him. So the little baby boy burned up in the fire. Jesse, isn't that the worst thing you've ever heard? That is horrifying. Truly horrifying. Stella and her older sister, Berta, suffered more burns attempting to save baby Joe, but they just couldn't get to him. And although Stella's injuries required less hospitalization this time around, I mean, you're still, how are you going through getting burned this much in life, you know? Yeah, there's, there's one thing in common here. Yes, there's a parental abandonment, essentially, you yes. know, what is going on. And also, I, I don't know why these kids are still lighting the stove using this sort of kerosene or whatever well, it's they're crazy. using. But I guess if their mom's gone for a really long time period and they have to use the stove to cook, maybe it was the only uh, option, you know? I guess. So devastated Coralie left her second husband and took her surviving children to Seattle where she waited tables. Stella grew up way too fast and was said by her sister to be sexually active by the time she left grammar school. What? Yeah. So that grammar school in the United States is considered elementary school. So we're talking about somebody who's leaving elementary or grammar school being like 11 or 12 years old. Whoa. I know it sounds cold, her sister Georgia May later admitted. Stella seemed to be mentally and physically five years beyond her normal years. Sometimes a girl grows up faster mentally and physically than her years say she is. So this is to me no excuse. I feel like when people are like, well, she just looked older. It's like, well, no, uh, yeah. mentally they're not yeah. older. It doesn't matter whether they looked older or not, you know? Yeah. That's like when people are like, I didn't know she was only, you know, 15. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Uh, that's 18 doesn't make it much better, dude. Yeah, exactly. There is a picture of her in the book. I'll try to get a screenshot of it for the Instagram where she's 13. And it is slightly jarring because she does look a lot older. But I think that's also just somebody who's had a very traumatic childhood. You grow up faster, you know? Yeah, yeah. Precocious and drawn to older men, Stella found herself pregnant and had a baby girl named Cynthia Leah when she was 15 years old. Oh my God, no. Yeah, and even worse, Stella claimed that the pregnancy was the result of gang rape. Oh no. Yeah, she said she was invited to her boyfriend's house and then jumped by some of his friends. <sighs> okay, that's horrible. Horrible. So her mother, Cora Lee's solution to the pregnancy was to have Stella marry the boyfriend who allegedly set up the gang rape. Can you imagine? Oh, great. Good idea. Yeah. Fortunately, Stella was strong enough to be like, oh, hell no to that. And she ended up getting engaged to a really nice boy who had always had a crush on her, a young man named Lester Slauson. So the two never end up really getting married because they end up having some fights throughout their relationship. And at this point, Cora Lee had moved to California and she decides, Stella decides to take her baby and go live with her mother rather than stay with this guy who she claims is not the biological father. But there was like some back and forth uh, about him thinking he was the biological father, even though she swore he wasn't. Jessie. So she she left. I know it's just, it's a mess. So she left this guy and. At first, Coralie was like, you're really young. 
you're only 15 years old. Now I think she was like 16 by the time she moved to California. She's like, let me watch the baby. Let me help you. Like she didn't want her daughter to miss out on her entire adolescence, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So Stella really took her mother up on it and basically just dumped baby Cindy on her and ran around wild. So she wasn't like exactly doing what Coralie wanted her to do, which is like, focus on your studies, finish high school. She was more like, great, this is an opportunity for you to babysit my kid while I go around and drink. And party. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to go rage now for a few years. Thanks, mom. Thanks, mom. So by the age of 18, she found herself pregnant again. And this time she gave the baby up for adoption. Oh, no. That's the exact opposite of what she wanted for her. No. And that's why when she told her mom she was pregnant again, she's like, I'm already raising one of your babies. You have got to give this one up for adoption. I cannot raise both babies. No. Yeah, but luckily, a couple years later, at 21, Stella Maudine met a 31-year-old military veteran named Bob Strong, and the two fell madly in love. Bob was responsible, respectful, kind, and he actually really, really wanted to be a father figure to her now four-year-old Cynthia. That's good. It is good. He was a stand-up guy, and he was more than enamored with Stella, who was very beautiful. She was very confident, and apparently she had this, like, signature walk that just, like, if she walked into a bar, you just couldn't take your eyes off of her. That's amazing. (laughs) So Stella and Bob married pretty quickly, and they settled in Orange County, California. But Stella had a real gift for destruction, And she could not, could not, could not, could not keep it in her pants. Oh, my God, girl. I know. Bob would later tell author Greg Olson that he knew she was running around on him once he came home to find Stella in a negligee on their couch with another man. Oh, my goodness. Could you imagine? Oh, my God. I would kill Nathaniel and be like... (laughs) It would be like an old school, like, comic book strip where, like, the woman chases the man with a frying pan out of the house. (laughs) Yeah. Another time. So he was like a carpenter and he put in cabinets. And so she went to a construction site he was working on and to, like, ostensibly say hi to him. And he caught her, like, showing another guy her breasts. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, Stella's wild. These are some of her husband, Bob Strong's words that were hilarious and from Bitter Almonds, and I had to include them. One time he saw her driving down the road in a little convertible Chevy. She had told him she needed to get out by herself. She needed to think. While driving down the coast highway, she later told her husband she stopped to give a couple of sailors a lift and ended up taking them all the way to San Diego. This is what she said, Bob said, shaking his head in disbelief at his wife's story. The gal had a problem and she didn't want to get it fixed. Oh, no one God. man could ever satisfy her. I don't give a damn what kind of man. He could be the stud of studs and be able to stand forever, and never fall and be 14 feet long and seven inches across and she'd still want other men. Okay, Bob. Oh, <laughs> Bob. It goes goes on. It didn't make any difference about size or nothing. She told me one time she couldn't stop herself. I have the feeling she was more or less a nymphomaniac. No matter what you do, they're not satisfied. I'm the only one in Orange County that hasn't been to bed with her yet, and I'm her husband, Bob told a friend at the time. Bob! 
Bob. Oh, poor Bob. So despite all of this running around, or maybe because of it, Stella gave birth to another daughter named Leah Ruth Strong on November 4th, 1966. Oh, man. But I mean, it can't be Bob's because they didn't sleep together yet. (laughs) I don't know. Who I don't know. Poor Leah. We have no idea who her father really is. Oh, no. She actually did have another pregnancy after this while she was still with Bob, but their marriage by the point of the second pregnancy was in such a bad state that they decided together to have an abortion, which I think I would assume it wasn't in a great state considering that statement. No. Well, soon Stella was in trouble with not just her husband, but the law as well. First, when a teacher noticed bruises on sweet third grade Cindy in 1969, Stella was arrested on suspicion of felonious beating of her own daughter. Okay, not cool, Stella. Very not cool. When Bob confronted his wife, she claimed that, yes, she had reprimanded Cindy for stealing her earrings and giving them to a school friend, but she hadn't actually beaten her that badly, and it was highly exaggerated. However, when Bob saw the little girl, he knew otherwise. Later, he would say that Cindy looked like she had been beaten half to death. She was just covered with bruises. Oh, my God, that's really sad. It's really sad. Years later, Stella would still deny it, saying that Cindy bruised easily and that she had gone to the nurse looking for attention. Okay. (laughs) I hate it when people say they bruise easily. And it's like, yeah, honey, any bruise is not okay. My eight-year-old bruises easily. And then she was looking for attention. No, she was looking for help because her mother beats her. Baby. Crazy. Even more traumatizing for Cindy was that during this incident, it was revealed to her that her legal last name was Slauson, not Strong, Uh and that Bob was not her real father. She didn't know that. (sighs) Yeah, so she was devastated. Also, I mean, what kind of conversation do you have then with your child when she says, well, okay, if Bob's not my real father, who is? And your mom's like, well, I was raped, so some dirtbag is your father, you know? Yeah, well, hopefully that's not what she said to her. Who knows what she said to her? I don't, I wouldn't put anything past Stella at this point, you know? I know. So shortly after this, Cindy was returned to the home and then Stella scammed her cousin's welfare checks and was caught. So she was convicted of fraud and sentenced to six months in jail, which also she didn't have to do any time for child abuse, but like she scams a welfare check and she has six months. Like the priorities are very skewed. So messed up. Mm -hmm. So Bob had been horrified by both the child abuse and the fraud charge. And while Stella was in prison, he actually left her for one of their neighbors. Oh my God. Yeah, so that's what Bob said. Bob said that, you know, she went to prison. She was this terrible person. She had been running Uh, around on him forever. And then he finally realized he was like in love with one of their single neighbors afterwards. But Stella claimed that Bob knew all about the fraud, that he was in on it. She said that she took the fall because she wanted Bob to take care of the girls so they didn't end up in foster homes. So basically, like, if they had both gone to prison, then the girls would have ended up in the system, you know? Yep. Yeah. So she was infuriated when she discovered the adultery and perceived abandonment. Uh. So following her release, she did get custody of her girls temporarily. 
but she was, as you can suspect, a god-awful mother. The kids, especially Cynthia, now a teen, always looked like they were suffering from being beat, and Stella was often out all night and into the morning, forcing Cindy to take care of little Leah. No. Yeah, Leah did say at this time it was the closest she ever was to her sister, and her sister was more of a mother to her than her of real course. mother was at this point. Like, she was yeah. the one who was, like, getting her ready for school, feeding her, you know? Yeah. So eventually Bob and his new wife, Pat, gained custody of Leah, but Cynthia was then bounced between Coralie, that's her grandmother, and various foster families. So this poor kid has been beaten by her own mother and now is like completely destabilized, you know? Yeah. In 1972, Stella met heavy equipment operator Bruce Nickel. Bruce had been adopted as a baby by a pair of sweet Washington State farmers who absolutely adored him. But he had always had issues with alcohol starting as early as 12. And they plagued him for most of his life, unfortunately. Oh, no. Yeah, the alcoholism exacerbated a feeling of abandonment that was caused by his biological mother giving him up for adoption. Later on, an ex-girlfriend would claim he had real hang-ups with women because of this. Of course. Yeah, Bruce seemed like a really, really nice guy who was just trying to, like, overcome his alcoholism and do the right thing and, you know, have a good job and have a good woman and settle into a good life, you know? Yeah, I mean, you can't blame him for what his mom did to him. <laughs> exactly. And it's it's really, really sad, you know, that feeling. And I don't blame anyone for having that feeling. It's that that first person who's supposed to love you no matter what is yeah. your mother. And even if you have amazing adoptive parents, it, it doesn't necessarily fill that gap in your heart, you know? No, definitely not. Yeah. So he met Stella And it seemed like they were a perfect match. They, of course, met in a bar and Stella was real hot. She always wore like these tiny little mini skirts with stockings, of course, to cover her scars. She had like really long pitch black hair. She was apparently part Native American. So she like she at least said she was. So she always like wore all this crazy jewelry and she like really dressed to the nines. She always had like these like fringy turquoise like western wear jackets on yep yep so she was like picture it (laughs) yeah she's like hella flashy she is loud and in charge and she was like one of the only women in the world that could like kind of match him drink for drink you know really yeah so she was kind of like this like tough sexy broad always wearing like bright red lipstick and he just thought she was the best thing that ever happened to him and she thought he was really really fun but not everyone thought that they were a perfect match in fact one of their mutual friends a bartender named Josephine who often saw them together didn't really like them as a pair in Bitter Almonds she said that she didn't think they were a good match she felt like Bruce was a true blue honest guy and Stella was never faithful oh no Yeah, Stella liked other men way too much to be devoted to Bruce. I always knew she was kinky as far as men go. I used to think she was a nymphomaniac, Josephine (laughs) said some years later. (laughs) 
I love that <laughs> word. They just keep coming back to Stella as a nympho over here. Yeah. Do people still use nymphomaniac or do they well, we just I call think, it sex addiction now? I also want to like note too, though, that like whenever a woman is promiscuous the same way that a man is, they always jump to the conclusions that they're like a nympho or a sex addict when like <laughs> that a is a very good point. Thank Seriously. you, Andy. Yes. So I'm not defending yes. Stella, but I do think that especially back like, you know, a few decades ago, like we would have been way quicker to judge someone if they were a female who liked sex. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that the problem with Stella is not her sex positivity or even like, you know, how many people she's sleeping with. It's that she's like in relationships or married while she's sleeping yeah, with people. Yeah, that's a problem. Yeah. That yeah, is just that. a loyalty problem too, though. Like you're not a loyal person. You're a shitty partner. Yes, exactly. And that's what Josephine said here. She told her friend that she didn't like the way she was running around on Bruce. And when she like confronted her about it, Stella was like, oh, you don't get it. He drinks too much and then he can't like have sex with me and I need to like get it somewhere. So he doesn't even care. He's passed out drunk. And Josephine's like, I think he would care if he knew. Yeah, honey. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Come on. I'm pretty sure he would it would bother him, you know, Oh my God. After a whole lot of running around, Stella finally decided to commit to Bruce and the couple was wed on September 11th, 1976 in Idaho. A little less than two years later, Cindy followed in her mother's footsteps and had a baby at the age of 19. That's not as bad. No, she was 15. I think it's just yeah. more like being unwed teen. teenage mother. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When Cindy told her mother she was pregnant, Stella only said, I'm not ready to be a grandmother and walked away, leaving Cindy super sad. Of course. Yeah. I mean, she was actually excited about the baby. She was in a relationship with the father of the baby. And, you know, she was over 18 when she got pregnant and she was excited to be a mother. So she really wanted support from her own mother that she was always trying to get, you know, some love yeah. from. And yeah. when she just said that and walked away, it really broke Cindy's heart. And it kind of shows you how narcissistic Stella yeah. is. She's basically saying, I'm not old enough to be a grandmother, you know? Yeah. And I guess Stella had her own problems at home, though. So maybe that's why she wasn't so excited about being a grandmother, because Bruce's drinking was crossing from like fun party guy into deeply problematic. Oh, no. He had several DUIs at this point. He was like getting kicked out of bars for bar fights. He was constantly injured from bar fights. He was getting aggressive and angry when he was drinking. So it was no longer a good time. And Stella did convince Bruce to get sober and attend rehab. And shockingly, after one stint in rehab, he got completely sober and was sober for the rest of his life. Okay, that's incredible incredible that's so unbelievably difficult to do uh yeah yeah so I think that Bruce really really wanted to be sober I mean you have to want it that bad if you manage to stay sober he even used to keep alcohol bottles in his house because he was like no I don't want to be like sober just because it's not around I want to choose every single day to be sober you know yeah yep really dedicated he was very, very dedicated. But for Stella, sometimes what you think you want isn't what you want at all because Stella actually really hated Sober Bruce. Okay, so you don't like him at all for who he is. <laughs> That's well, pretty much just, what you're trying to say. 
it just goes to show that she wasn't ever really in love with Bruce. Exactly. She was in love with going out and partying and having a good time. Exactly. And when Bruce got sober and he wanted to stay in, she was like getting frustrated. And she's like, well, we never do anything anymore, which get over yourself, Stella. Seriously. Yeah. And I think also they also had some money issues, like constantly in the relationship as well as clearly personal issues between the two of them. And when you're drunk all the time, you can cover that up, you know? So I think when he got sober and she was kind of forced to be a little bit more sober, they had more issues because they realized they weren't on the same page about things, you know? Yep. So while they're going through this, he decides to take a job in Alaska because it's like really good fast cash and also give them both some space. But he gets even more frustrated when he hears through the grapevine that while he's in Alaska, freezing his took us off, trying to make a buck for his family. She's like running around sleeping with people again. Of course she is. Yeah. So he quits the job in Alaska and comes home so he can keep an eye on her. And by Bruce's return, history <laughs> was. He might truly... need to use both of his eyes because, you know, he <laughs> He's might gonna have to use all of his senses to keep an eye <laughs> and some sort of idea of what she's doing here. Yeah. At this point, history is again kind of repeating itself because while he was away, Cindy and her daughter moved in and Stella was now taking care of Cindy's daughter while Cindy was running around with truck drivers and she oh, kind of picked up. Uh, how the tables yeah, so burned. It's it's a little bit of a, a karma, karma fairy yeah. over here. Yep. <laughs> karma jizz. Yeah, karma jizzed all over the situation. <laughs> So yeah, in spring of 1984, Bruce was once more laid off. So both Cindy and Stella got work at Eddie Bauer where they were doing some sewing. And then the mother and daughter duo switched over to working together doing security at Seattle airport. So by late 1984, Cindy tied the knot with a trucker named Pepper Hamilton, which is a great name. Yes. And at that wedding, Stella revealed to a friend that she was having an affair with Bruce's married best friend, Jim McCarthy. Oh my God, girl. I know. His best friend? That's just evil. The worst. Yeah, so she contended that it was a love match because he too had some like indigenous American blood in him as well. And they were like a match spiritually and sexually and all this stuff. But later on, Jim McCarthy denies ever being with Stella. So I, I'm inclined to think Stella's probably telling the truth in this one because it makes sense that he would want to avoid <laughs> saying he was sleeping with his best friend's wife, you know? Of course, that's horrid. It's absolutely horrid. So she tells this to a random friend at her daughter's wedding. So clearly, you know, there's flaws in this nickel marriage, but the Hamilton marriage also comes apart after only a month or two. I mean, would you expect anything different? <laughs> Well, poor Cindy never had a shot. She never had an example of how to be in a functional relationship, you know? So yeah, Cindy and her daughter moved into an apartment with another single mother named Katie and her daughter. And Katie understood that while Cindy and Stella had had troubles in the past and they had had a, a very contentious relationship, at this point in history, they have actually a really, really good relationship. Like I guess like Stella was there for her during the end of her marriage and Cindy's there for her during her issues with Bruce. So the true are very close at this point. Good, okay. 
Uh, but Katie reported something a little weird that Cindy said later on, which I will tell you about right now from Bitter Almonds. I was just going to say, is it <laughs> is it something bitter? It is something bitter and a little bizarre. Cindy Hamilton returned to Katie Hurt's tiny apartment with a perplexed, bewildered look on her face. Katie noticed it right away. Cindy had just come from visiting her mother. She took a chair at the kitchen table and Katie stood next to her. Cindy, what's the matter? Nothing. There was silence. Finally, Cindy spoke again. Katie, you aren't going to believe what my mom asked me. She asked me how much cocaine it would take to kill a person. (laughs) A lot. Yeah, a lot. (laughs) What did you say? I told her it depended on the weight of the person. Although Bruce Nichols' name was never mentioned in conjunction with the cocaine, the implication was that Stella had asked the question with regard to him. Your mom wouldn't really do something like that, Katie said. She's just asking about it, isn't she? Yeah, I guess Cindy answered. Uh, She didn't seem that convinced. No. (laughs) So later on, the FBI find out around the same time of this conversation, Stella also purchased life insurance policies on Bruce, forging his name on the documents. That is not suspicious at all. (laughs) No. (laughs) Um, The FBI also talked to a ton of people about their relationship because Stella had told them that they had a great marriage Uh and everyone else is like, no, these people were disasters. They had a terrible marriage. Like she basically told people that she liked working the night shift at the airport so she could avoid seeing him. That's how much she didn't like him. Yeah, sounds great. Sounds sounds like a love match over here. She also told separate people like she wanted to move to Mexico. She told one woman and then she was also kind of making plans to move to Texas, both without Bruce. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So at this point, when they start learning about, you know, the life insurance policies, the relationship, they talk to Cindy's roommate, Katie, and they heard that conversation. They are like, OK, we got to put the pressure on her that we've been putting on Paul. Yep. So now they're going after her hard to take a polygraph. And for weeks, she's like, I can't do it. My doctor doesn't want me to do it. I've been drinking. I have anxiety. Yeah, she's like trying to come up with all these excuses. And finally, one day she's like, you know what? Fine, fine, fine. I want you guys off my back. I'll just take it. And shocker alert, she fails it miserably. (laughs) Did she get a doctor's note for her failed test as well? Well, she was trying to say that it was like related to her anxiety, you know, uh-huh. that she that that was like why she had spikes, not because she was lying. Meanwhile, the agents had been canvassing pet and specialty fish stores that sell algae destroyer. And in August of 1986, <laughs> they hit dirt. Tom Noonan, a manager at Fish Gallery and Pets, picked Stella's photo out of a lineup claiming that she was a regular customer and a frequent buyer of algae destroyer. Wow. That's Mm -hmm. almost as bad as hemorrhoid cream. (laughs) Which is a callback to our John List episode, which is a great case about family annihilators, guys, if you want to go back and check it out. In fact, he said that he had to special order algae destroyer for Stella. Oh, girl. 
Mm-hmm. Not good. Nope. So he said that he didn't normally carry it in the store. He said he preferred stocking liquids. He remembered telling Stella Nickel that he didn't care for the product when she said liquid algae gone didn't really work for her and she preferred algae destroyer. You know why? Why? Because you can't put the liquid in the capsule. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Don't worry about it, he recalled her saying. I'll just go next door and get it. Not wanting to lose a customer, he put in an order for Mrs. Nickel. I'd get it. She'd buy some. Others did too. She was one of the primary people I obtained the product for. 12 would last us maybe two or three weeks, depending on whether Stella was buying the stuff. Noonan explained that moisture sometimes seeped into the blister-packed tablets, hardening them to the point where they became almost insoluble. As a matter of course, I would tell anybody that bought the products that the only way to get it to work was to crush it up and add hot water to it. So he confirmed that he definitely, definitely told this to Stella and the agents now knew how the green material had been mixed into the cyanide. It had been an accident. The tamperer had likely used a dirty bowl, one that she had used to dissolve the crushed green algae destroyer tablets when she put the cyanide into the capsules. Wow. Yes. So their hypothesis is that Stella killed Bruce to collect insurance and perhaps lawsuit money by mimicking the Tylenol cyanide murders of Chicago. No link between the Nichols and Sue Snow was ever found. Sue had just been collateral damage in Stella's terrible scheme. Whoa, that's so sad. It's so sad, but I mean, I guess Stella needed at least one other person to die if it was going to look like the Tylenol cyanide murders, you know? Yeah, but that's fucked. It's so callous not to care about someone's life that way just so you can get some money. It's crazy. Yeah. However, they could not connect Stella to actually purchasing any cyanide, nor did they have any evidence of her planting the tainted bottles in the stores where they were found. So everything at this point is just circumstantial. Huh. That is until they get a phone call from a neighbor and friend of both Stella and Cindy's named Dee Rogers, whom Cindy had been staying with. And she tells the FBI that Cindy had revealed to her that Stella killed Bruce. So Dee convinced Cindy to come forward and the two women meet up with two special agents at a local Burger King for an interview. Oh, wow. Class. Which is so wild. It reminds me of another Greg Olson that we did, um, I think episode six, maybe it was the Bitch on Wheels episode. Yep. Where remember she like confesses in a pizza hut? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So random. So they meet at this Burger King and Cindy sings like a canary. Stop. Yeah, she tells everything. She claims that Stella was bored with Bruce and had become annoyed and resentful of him since he got sober. Additionally, she had fallen in love with her affair partner, Jim McCarthy, and wanted to become available to him so he would consider marrying her. Oh, my God. She said that her mother was frustrated that the death had been ruled natural. She wanted it to be found out to be cyanide because it meant a lesser payout. And she had actually called the medical examiner's office several times, like hounding them to be like, I don't think it could be emphysema. Don't you think it could be something else? Do you think it could potentially be poison? Oh my God. 
Yeah, so this dumbass called repeatedly, which of course sent up a red flag. And this was all confirmed by the medical examiner's office. So greed, one of those seven deadly sins is definitely going to do Stella in here. I'm sure she was doing more than one of the deadly sins. Oh yeah, she's got a passel, just a whole (laughs) whole collection. She's like getting them like Pokemon over here. She's collecting sins. So Cindy told the agents that her mother kept empty capsules near her fish tank, occasionally breaking down the algae destroyer and putting it into the capsules and then putting the empty capsules into the tank. So she was well-versed in how to break something down and put it into empty capsules. Ugh, girl. She also discussed some of her mother's previous ideas on how to kill Bruce. This was not her first rodeo. From Bitter Almonds... Her mother kept telling her, we could have so much fun with Bruce out of the way. With his insurance, we'd have the money to open a fish or ceramic store. Oh my God, here we go with another woman who wants to open like a craft store. I know, I I think Dan should like watch out for you with your like (laughs) antiques and like clothing store over here. (laughs) These ladies are like really making a bad name for my future. They are, Riri Koo, Riri Kill You. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Yep. So the agent asked, did you really think your mother was going to kill Bruce? And she said, I knew she was going to do it because she was so calm and intense about it. Though the talk had gone on for years, it escalated into action around the start of 1986 when Cindy was hired at the Seattle airport. Her mother said she filled capsules with some poisonous seeds and fed them to Bruce, but they only made him sluggish. Okay, crazy bitch. Crazy. So the agents, of course, were like, why was Bruce taking what your mother was giving him? And apparently he suffered from grinding his teeth at night. And so Stella would tell him that it was like a stress vitamin to make him not grind his teeth. I need some of those too. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. I think they're called Valium. (laughs) (laughs) My stress vitamins. Oh my God. Another time, Cindy said, her mother also talked about hiring a professional hitman who could shoot Bruce through his truck window. She said how nice it would be if dad had an accident, a hitman, a hit and run, someone to mess with his brakes on his truck. Oh, my God. But her mother didn't have any money. The lack of cash was the pressure that was pushing all of these scenarios. Over the years, there were other aborted plans. Heroin or cocaine in Bruce's iced tea was considered. Wow. Cindy claimed her mother brought up the Chicago cyanide case during a ride to the airport one morning. Casual. (laughs) Casual conversation on your way to work. She talked about how easy it would be to reenact the case, how people would be looking for someone to take something from a store, not put it back. And seeing as she got away with putting something in the store, I guess it did work. A couple of months before her stepfather's death, Cindy said she noticed a Tupperware container filled with white powder in the airport locker she and her mother shared. There were also some capsule medications. It surprised me because mom never used sugar or salt when she ate lunch. After Bruce died, the packages and container disappeared. I thought Mm -hmm. it might have been cyanide, she said. Wow. Wow. So Cindy is definitely spilling her guts, but the FBI is a little suspicious still. Number one, how could Cindy know so much about the attempted and eventual murders without being complicit herself? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. To that, Cindy replied that she'd always sought her mother's approval and wanted to be on her good side. So she kind of just like went along with her musings 
because she assumed that her mother would never actually kill Bruce. Like this had been going on for a couple years. So at this point, it's just kind of like a running like to Cindy a joke, you know? Yep. So yeah, she's like, she tells them, she's like, it's just one of those things like, you know, when you say like, oh, I want to kill my mom. She was so blah, blah, blah. She was like, I thought it was like one of those things. The other reason that the FBI is a little suspicious is because, of course, there's that $300,000 reward that she would be eligible yep. for. Yep. So they know if this information results in the arrest of Stella, that Cindy and Dee could qualify for it. So they're like, you know what, ladies, we got to hook you up to a lie detector test just to make sure this information is good. And both women pass. Good. Okay, good. Yep. So the information is good. So despite the fact that Cindy seemed well-intentioned, all of Stella's family and inner circle hated her. And they were completely repulsed by the fact that in their opinion, the daughter was turning the mother in for monetary gain. Yeah, that's kind of what it seems like. It does, but I don't know. I know that like, you know, snitches get stitches. But she was a terrible mother to her. And, you know, Stella killed somebody. So, (laughs) yeah, it seems like it's fair. (laughs) It is. I guess it's but I can also see how people are like, how was she not complicit? Yes. And I think that a lot of Stella's family, like especially her sisters and her mother, really believed that she was innocent. They didn't think that she did it, you know. So based on Cindy's statements, the agents go down to the library where they match Stella's prints to library books about cyanide and poisonous plants that can kill specifically foxglove. Yikes. Yeah, which I guess is what you did before you could just Google how to kill. (laughs) (laughs) You got to get a library card, go down to the library, take out the books, get your prints all over them. Oh, get your little grummy paws all over them. Exactly. They also have handwriting experts confirm that Stella forged the life insurance signatures. And by this point, they think they have enough evidence to successfully prosecute Stella. So she's indicted by a grand jury on five counts of product tampering, including two which resulted in murder charges for Bruce and Sue Snow. So going back to like the red herring of this case, up until Stella's indictment, Sue's family still 100% believed that Paul was responsible for her death. Okay, that's crazy. Well, he didn't I mean, make so himself- did I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's crazy. I don't usually like write these guys like things to trick you guys at all. It just so happened no! that every- <laughs> sometimes you do okay occasionally I do but this one like wrote itself Paul acted like such a jerk that it was so easy in fact he apparently sold off a bunch of Sue's jewelry before he could give it to her daughters like how rude okay I like cannot with this guy he's such a like (laughs) he's like a scumbag on his own like he didn't need to murder someone in order to like be a scumbag that's like no 100%. It's so funny because sometimes red flags in this show mean murder. And today they just mean kind of just generally a jerky guy. (laughs) So funny. I know. I feel a little bad for him, though, because think about it. If we feel this way, all of his like dirty laundry got aired. The FBI was up his butt and all of his loved ones thought he killed his wife. Like that's pretty wretched, no matter how rude you are, you know? Yeah. 
I guess. Maybe he shouldn't have been, like, cheating on her. Yeah. I got to give it to you there. Yeah. He should have You know, he was, like, Mm -hmm. philandering around. Yeah, he was Mr. Philandero. Mr. Philandereth. Yes. Anyway, so Stella goes on trial in April 1988. The prosecution lays out the FBI's case. That Stella wanted her husband dead for money and for love with the alleged affair. And that she, as a result, product tampered to copycat the Chicago Tylenol murders, callously killing innocent bystander Sue Snow at the same time. So they say she screwed up what could have been a perfect murder plot by putting the cyanide in the same bowl she used to grind up algae destroyer and hounding the autopsy people so she could collect the accidental death insurance instead of the much less natural death insurance. They also introduced the sheer unlikelihood of Stella somehow accidentally ending up with two out of five bottles of the cyanide-laced Excedrin when they had searched over 15,000 bottles. Whoa. Yeah, and how they found it was also weird, too, because they searched her house and they found an additional bottle of Excedrin in a cabinet. And they were like, hey, I thought we asked you to turn in all your bottles of Excedrin. And she's like, huh, I didn't know that one was there, you know? So maybe she didn't want it to be found or she forgot it was there, you know? Yeah. Wow. They presented evidence that the signatures on the life insurance policies were forged, which Stella actually didn't deny. She said that as the person who did the paperwork in the home, she always forged Bruce's signature with his permission. It's hard because, like, I definitely sign things for Dan, you know? 100%. It's plausible. 100% plausible. When you, like, live with someone and your partners, like, but it doesn't really seem like the relationship was... Well, it's also easy to say after he's passed away, you know? Yeah. (laughs) They also had Tom Noonan, the fish store manager, testify to Stella's purchase of the algae destroyer. Cindy's roommate, Katie, corroborates some of the information Cindy had provided to the police and the fingerprint evidence on the library books. Of course, the prosecution's biggest witness was Stella's own daughter, Cynthia Leah, who actually really held her own despite a harsh cross-examination and her extended family all glaring at her from the courtroom seats. I would have a very hard time doing this. I would have a very hard time testifying against my mother. No kidding. Even if she did kill someone, I think it would be hard, you know? Yeah, but I mean... I guess your mom's a lot different than <laughs> yes, Stella. Both of our mothers are a lot different from Stella here. Now, the defense contended that Stella hadn't bought the LG side at all. I guess there wasn't any paper trail. So it was basically Tom Noonan's word. And he said she, you know, bought bought it with cash. They also said that Cindy and Katie's timelines were all wrong and that Cindy was a money-grubbing little ingrate who was willing to frame her mother for cash. Wow. In fact, they went as far to suggest that Cindy was the real poisoner and that this was all an elaborate ruse to get back at her mom and score a payday. Whoa. I know. I, I think that's a little too far. As far as the poisonous plant books go, the defense claimed that when Stella began babysitting her granddaughter on her rural property, she wanted to make sure the child wouldn't accidentally ingest any poison. That's why she was checking them out. Ah. I know they have an answer for everything, huh? They really do. Uh Uh-huh. 
So when the closing statements were read, the jury began a truly arduous deliberation process. Basically, from the first vote, 11 of the jurors wanted to convict, and there was only one woman, a real estate agent named Laurel Holiday, who refused to consider a conviction and maintained Stella's innocence. Everyone else on the jury found the woman extremely suspect as she was taking copious notes, and somebody looked over her shoulder, and she was like... She's like taking notes on the other jurors. She's like, this juror reads this trash and these people are so beneath me and they only read tabloids. And like, she's like writing notes about the entire process, not just the case. So weird. So weird. So they kept trying to convince her like, hey, 11 out of 12 of us all agree that Stella's guilty. Like, let's hash this out. We are like, got to get you on our side over here. And she refused. So they kept telling the judge, we cannot come to a conclusion. And the judge was like, piss off. We are not going to mistrial. You guys have to work this out. Eventually, the standout jury member claimed that she had been the recipient of a harassing phone call, eventually writing a letter to the judge, which I was going to say, there was something rotten here because there's no way that just one jury member would disagree with all, like, there's no way. It had to have been some sort of, you know, foul play. So this is what she says happens. She writes a letter to the judge and she says, Dear Judge Dwyer, I am a juror in Stella Nichols' trial. Something happened on Friday, which I must tell you about. A woman called me at home about 7 p.m. and said, Don't you all know that she failed the lie detector test? She hung up before I even had a chance to realize what she was saying. I have tried to think who it could have been, but I did not recognize the voice. It frightened me that someone sought out my home number and called me like this. I told my roommate about it shortly after this woman called, but I haven't told anyone else. I left a message for you on the phone number for jurors Friday night, but then I remembered that we are only supposed to write to you. Sincerely, Laurel Holiday. Now, none of the other jurors received any such phone calls. And they're like, she is squirrely and a little off and we don't necessarily believe her. At this point, the judge is like, she's been a problem. Like, obviously something's going on here. She's acting scared for her life. So he's like, I'm just going to let her off the jury and we're going to proceed as an 11 person jury. But I don't know whether the defense attorney knew that she kept fighting for Stella's innocence or not. But the defense attorney... Tom Hillier was like, no, we're not going to do that. She's staying on the jury no matter what. Ah. So eventually, after five days of deliberation and them deciding to keep Laurel on the jury, Laurel finally conceded. She was like, fine, I give up. I'm going with you guys. She said at the end of the day that she had kind of come around, but she still wasn't completely sure of what the definition of reasonable doubt was. So she still had some questions, but she ended up deciding to convict with the rest of the jury and a conviction of guilty was handed down. But upon further investigation, the FBI did not believe at all that the harassing phone call took place. And they discovered that not only had Laurel been feeding information to reporters and angling for a book deal about the trial, she had also been part of a product tampering slash manufacturing error lawsuit previously. She claimed this bitch. 
this bitch claimed that she had bit into a goldfish cracker and tasted something bitter that hurt her tooth. And then she like pulled it out of her mouth and called poison control. And on the recorded message with poison control, she says, I know that they had cyanide poisonings over in Auburn. So I'm really scared. So she knew about this case and then apparently claimed that she bit into something in a goldfish cracker that was later found out to be an ibuprofen pill. (laughs) How did she get on this jury? Exactly. So that's exactly the point is how did she get on this jury? And the the crazy thing about this whole Advil situation or, you know, Advil is ibuprofen. I don't know if it was technically Advil, but it's ibuprofen. Well, get your facts right, (laughs) Jesse. So the craziest thing about it is that they did an investigation and they found out that the way that they create goldfish crackers, there's no way an Advil tablet could actually survive like the rollers that they put the dough through to cook the goldfish crackers. So they're like, she obviously planted this Advil or ibuprofen in the goldfish cracker and pretended to bite it. So she settled this lawsuit for $500. What? They were like, here's $500 to go away. Thank you. But how, again, how... how, On this jury, when did she call in about the goldfish? How long before she got called into the jury? I mean, it it couldn't have been that long. I mean, this investigation and getting to, you know, the trial took a little while, but it wasn't that long. So it was was fairly soon before this trial. What are the fucking odds? It's crazy. So some people think that she purposely tried to get on it. How do you do that? that Stella was innocent in some weird way because she f- was trying to prove something about her own case, apparently. I I have no idea. But everyone agrees that this is completely bizarre. And at this point, the defense argued that, of course, this information should have been disclosed before yeah. they selected her for the jury. And they file an appeal for the verdict to be overturned. What? Yeah. Even though she was the only one who was defending Stella. Yes, exactly. But they're they're going to look at anything that they can do to get the verdict overturned. However, the appeal was denied. So the verdict was not okay, overturned. Okay, 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 okay. It was just a bizarre footnote in a bizarre case. Whoa. Yeah. So Stella Maudine was sentenced to two 90-year prison terms for the murders of Bruce Nickel and Sue Snow as well as 30 additional years for other tampering charges. Which is pretty much an LWAP. Yeah, that's pretty much an LWAP. She does get parole at some point, but it is very unlikely that she will still be alive or in good health. So the Non-Prescription Drug Manufacturers Association did eventually award the $300,000 reward, which is, like I said, $736,000, give or take, in today's money based on whose information was the most valuable. Cindy herself received the lion's share with $250,000. Tom Noonan received $15,000. D. Rogers, $7,500. And roommate Katie received $2,500. The small amount left was distributed among other witnesses in the case. The FBI had suggested a fair split amongst all witnesses, 
but I guess that the Drug Manufacturers Association decided to award it based on who they felt their testimony was the most valuable. Please tell me Cindy did something good with the money and her life. No. No. So Cindy uh, basically, (laughs) no. (laughs) So Cindy basically like never heard from like her family ever again. And when Greg Elson was writing this book, he basically was like, I tried to find Cindy. I tried to talk to her and and I didn't. And then he wrote on, I think his author's page that later on he, after this book was published, Cindy's daughter reached out to him and it was not good. She was like, I've managed to make something in my life thank goodness, but my mom was a terrible mom and she basically squandered all the money and she alienated us from our entire family. Wow. Yeah. So unfortunately, we don't have a happy story. I don't know anything more of where Cindy is today, but Greg Olson maintained that he did not want to out her daughter. So that's why he never uses her name in his writings. And I think she has overcome her family and her upbringing and is doing well. So I'm glad that she survived that. So Stella continues to maintain her innocence and most of her family has stood by her. Some months after the conviction, Wilma May, Stella's niece and most ardent supporter, was clearing her trailer out and found several things that broke her heart and led her to believe that Stella was indeed guilty of killing her uncle Bruce. First, there were several bottles of small blackish seeds, one of which was labeled foxglove. Whoa. Yep. And there was also a diary that basically, while Wilma's reading it, she's like, this is weird. This never happened. And when she saw the date, which was in 1986, she realized that it was a fantasy in which Stella and Bruce were being stalked. And this was one of the things that Cindy said her mother talked about. Like if she got a hitman, she would like write in a diary to pretend that they had been like being stalked and harassed so that she could like turn it in and be like, wow, this has been happening for so long. And then someone finally killed him, you know? Yep. So at that point, Wilma was like, oh my gosh, she stood by her through the trial and everything else. And she's like, I have to admit at this point, I think she's guilty. Shit. Yep. So as of April 2019, Stella Nichol is housed at a female-only low-security prison in Dublin, California, just east of San Francisco. Her release date is currently given as July 10th, 2040. No parole dates are given, but she was technically eligible for parole in 2018 when she was 75 years old. Oh my God. So as far as I know, she's still in prison, although I've heard that she's quite popular there and she gets along with everybody. She's like, you know, kind of like an old mom, madam type, you know? Old mom, madam type. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. So that is the story of the Seattle cyanide murders. I don't know. Do you, what do you think? Do you think she was guilty? Yes. Yes. Okay. I do too. (laughs) on that is insane and I cannot believe I did not know about it yeah it's a crazy crazy case I hope someday they solve the Tylenol cyanide Chicago murders because that's so interesting Mm -hmm. 
I I mean, that was, you said 82. So I feel like DNA was just starting to get out. And I, who knows, like, that's just so, I doubt there were as many security cameras. Like you said, there weren't as many like tampering precautions on anything. Like, it's just crazy how different things are now. I mean, I guess it's pretty much 40 years ago, which is mind boggling considering we were born in 84 and 85, but yeah. Um, but <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's why they have all those like warnings that say like, if yeah. the seal is broken, do not yeah. ingest, you know, yeah. and that sort of thing. I mean, gosh, back I've, in the day, it was like, I've always been terrified. Like if things are open or broken, or even if like, there is a chance that like, something got punctured in my Trader Joe's bag on the way from the store to home, I'll always throw it out because my mom used to like scare me about that shit. Okay, Andy and I have very, very different approaches to life. (laughs) Because I never think about this at all. 100%. I like drink something. I'm like, that is a weird taste. Whatever. I'll keep drinking it. And recently when Andy was visiting us, a bat flew into my home. And Andy immediately is like freaking out. We think we get the bat out. It's very dramatic. I can't even get into it. I I don't want to talk about it too long. I mean, it's the end of the story. So I feel like you guys, if you're still here and you want to hear it, you can. But, you know, it's this dramatic moment. The bat's flying around. Andy's husband like is like batting it out with this like sheepskin rug I have. And like we get the bat out of the house. In a humane way. May I note. Yes, in a humane way, we think the bat's out of the house. We all do shots of tequila and celebrate. And then lo and behold, the next day I go into my bedroom and right next to my son's crib, the bat is sleeping on the floor. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, we just put the bat outside. And Andy's like, no, we have to test the bat for rabies. And I am remembering the summer before I found a baby bat in my home, in my old home. And I literally filled up bottle caps with baby formula and fed the baby bat. And not once did it cross my mind that this animal could give me rabies. Or a slew of any other diseases that bats carry. Nope, not even. I have children. People, I have I had a child at this point and I am here being like Mother Teresa, Florence Nightingale of bats, feeding it from a bottle cap, like the biggest dumbass in the entire oh, world. I know. Y'all so, thought I was crazy when I first said we need to capture it. You guys all looked at me like I was crazy and I was like, we need to capture it. And then when we called the behavioral health people, they were like, or what, what was it? Yeah, it was the behavioral oh, the health department. department. Yeah, the health department. Yep. Yeah, the yeah, the um, health department of... Um, or Duchess County, they were like, thank God you have that bat. (laughs) Weren't they? They were, they were, they were so grateful to you, Andy. I was like, I once lived in a house with 30 bats in the attic. Who cares? Like I am, I am bat woman over here. Um, So yeah. So the guys, this just goes to show Andy and I have different approaches. I would have definitely been dead of cyanide poisoning. Had I I been, I asked you about my gnocchi that was a little discolored last night. (laughs) This is, this is why we are a good pair because I am very rash. You are very practical and and careful. And careful. And I need you because you might help me survive a few more years of my life, Andy. My children (laughs) and my husband, thank you. It's like my reaction to Alden playing outside naked as well. You need me. (laughs) Yeah, I sent a video of my daughter playing outside naked and Andy's like, there's going to be ticks. Check for ticks. (laughs) 
okay, find guys. yourself a best friend who is opposite of you. Absolutely. It's important. And I make Andy, I guess, dangerous and fun. <laughs> I don't know what I do for you. Something good. I make you, I made you come on a podcast. So here we are. Here we are. Here we are. Uh, okay, guys, thank you so much for hanging out with us for a year. Woo! Um, Andy and I have some fun stuff coming up for the next year. I think we're going to finally start a Patreon, so we'll keep you posted on that. I'm trying to figure out what kind of bonus content I can try to lure you in with. If you like this story, please definitely give us a rating, subscribe, review. We love our reviews and we love you guys. Each and every review touches our heart. I'm not joking. And in conclusion, if you're planning on you know, poisoning random strangers and your beloved husband, maybe you should use a different mortar and pestle that you use for your algae destroyer. Oh, and probably don't go to the pet store and special order a bunch of algae destroyer that's going to incriminate you in your trial coming up. Agreed. I think that's a really good call, Andy. Yeah, you know, (laughs) as always, Trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up poisoned. Thank you guys so much for listening. We love you. Bye.